Scripture reading for this morning's sermon is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 42. Let us hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly, do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. May God bless the reading sacred scripture. Dear congregation, including boys and girls among us, asking questions is a common way of communication. Children ask questions to parents, and parents, they in turn question children. Students question teachers, and teachers question students. Friends question one another. We question strangers, and strangers question us. There are also different kinds of questions. There can be trick questions, 
testing questions, sincere questions, caring questions, educational questions, disciplinary questions, and the list can surely go on. We ask a lot of questions over the course of a lifetime and even in a day and in a week. Well, in the passage we read, we came across a lawyer, a professional questioner, if you will, who asked Jesus, the greatest answerer, a very important question, even though the motive may not have been sincere. He asked, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is a good question for us to ask ourselves as well. And Jesus' answer might be a little different than how we would expect him to answer, but it was a wise answer for the situation, for this man and others like him. And it is a good one for us to consider as well. We don't read of what happened to this man afterwards, but it is possible that Jesus' answer was used for this man's conviction of sin and for his repentance and faith just as it is possible that God may use this passage for that today as well, or to conform us more to the example of the Good Samaritan, perhaps, and like our loving Savior himself. And so with God's help, we hope to look at this with our text being Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. And our theme is a lawyer's inquiry about eternal life. A lawyer's inquiry about eternal life. And we have with that four points. First, the question. Second, the answer. Third, the clarification. And fourth, the application. So, a lawyer's inquiry about eternal life. The question, the answer, the clarification, and the application. Our text begins with that familiar word, behold, behold, meaning pay attention, revealing that something important and worthy to pay attention to had happened or was about to happen. And, and what was that? Well, it was that a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus. Now, who was this lawyer? Who was this inquirer? It is understood that he, is, he was one of the Jewish religious leaders associated with the Pharisees. He was a scribe, which was a legal expert, teacher, and interpreter of the laws of Moses. And such people like him were generally disapproving of the teachings of Jesus, thinking that they were contrary to the Torah, but also because they were discrediting of their own teachings. Now, we do not know what preceded this incident. It seems disconnected from the previous verses in the chapter. It also seems like a different occasion than Matthew 22 and Mark 12, where the moral law is also summarized. But it probably came while Jesus was doing or had just finished some teaching of the gospel. And then this lawyer stood up and interjected. His intent was to test Jesus, it says. Maybe not so much with the intent to examine whether his answers were correct or to receive certainty for his own comfort, 
but probably more to try to trap him to give an answer that he and others like him and with him could disapprove, in which they could also then announce to the people so that he would no longer be credible. And so this lawyer, he tested Jesus with a question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit or receive eternal life? Now, regardless of his motive, he asked a very important question. How to receive eternal life? He didn't ask about the weather or politics or science or how to extend life, or how to make more money, or how to advance in life. He didn't ask any question about this life, but how to receive eternal life. It is good for us ourselves to take this question to heart as well. It is good to think about what happens after death, to think about God's judgment and our future after death, and how we can receive eternal life instead of eternal death. Sadly, many live also in churches, only for the here and the now, and they don't want to think about death. Or if the thought of death crosses their minds, they just assume that it will all be well with them because they have believed the lie of that, which is all too common. Many haven't actually thought about things like judgment after death, about what our sins deserve, original and actual, and even eternal condemnation. Many haven't thought about how unthankful and terrible and offensive all of our sins are, being against God's great goodness, which He has lavished on us since creation. Many haven't thought about how God, our Creator, is absolutely righteous in character and will be in judgment, and that above all things, we need to be made right with Him. Instead, we should think more about these things and have concern for our sins and our relationship with God and our eternal future. And with that, we should indeed think more also about the prospect of eternal life, about believers living with God in glory, in perfect peace and fellowship forever after death or after Christ's return, if he returns before we die. And even that believers enjoy that living in peace and fellowship with God in part already here. And the question is then, Is this eternal life our life? If it is not, or if you are not sure, or to double-check, then the question is that of this lawyer, what shall I do to inherit or receive eternal life? Now, of course, we notice also the beginning of this question, what shall I do? We know that we must repent towards God and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we must do. God will not do that for us. We must do that, though by God's grace, of course. And not that we merit by our repentance and faith, but we receive by that what Christ has merited. 
of being a part of a legalist group, this lawyer was thinking of something different. He was surely thinking, what can he do to earn eternal life for himself? What standard of obedience does he need to follow and, and to what extent? And of course, he was thinking about the law of God. We see then how this could indeed be a trick question. If Jesus said eternal life was by anything other than the keeping of the law, the lawyer could accuse him of diminishing the holy law and no longer be credible. And if he said eternal life was by law keeping, then the lawyer could mistakenly say that, well, there is no need then to follow Jesus. Well, how did Jesus answer this trick question? Brings us to our second point, the answer. Instead of answering him with a statement, he did so with a question of his own, really turning the table so that he was now testing the lawyer. We read that he, Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law, referring especially to the moral law? What is your reading or understanding of it? Jesus, of course, knew all that was written. But he wanted to ask, ask the so-called law expert for his summary. And the man was probably a little surprised that Jesus answered this way, and he was probably getting a little nervous already, too. But it was a fair response, and so he was obliged to answer it. And so the lawyer replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That indeed was a summary of the law that Jesus himself taught in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, speaking of the first and great commandment and the second as like unto it. And this summary was not only correct in itself, but it was also the quotation of Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, verse 18b. And this summary really conveys that the requirement of the law is love. Love towards God and love towards our neighbor. As you know, the summary of the law as love towards God refers especially to the first table of the Ten Commandments, which includes the first four commandments, children, you shall not have any other gods. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This love towards God is worshipful. It is serving, obeying, honoring, praising him. It is living for his glory. And this is to be done, the lawyer correctly said, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now, we won't get into the exact difference between these four descriptions, but I'll just share what one commentator said. He described them as referring to our emotions, our consciousness, our drive, and our intelligence or cognitive abilities. In short, we are to serve him with our 
whole being. Just as David said in Psalm 103 regarding blessing the Lord, he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Further, the summary of the law as love towards our neighbor, we know refers especially to the second table of the Ten Commandments, which includes the last six commandments. And again, boys and girls, that is honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And you shall not covet. And this loving our neighbor is to be done as to yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as though he or she were you. Love your neighbor as you would want them to treat you if you were them in their situation. And this love and compassion towards our neighbor, to fellow mankind, is, is also worship towards God, as is, it is in obedience to God. So the lawyer gave a very good answer. It is commendable. We would agree, and, and Jesus did too. It was an accurate summary of the law. And so Jesus replied and said to him, You have answered rightly. But then came the challenge. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. And this word do there in the Greek is an imperative in the present tense, which means continual action. Jesus was not saying you may have done this a bit in the past and you need to do this again a bit. Nor is he saying you you must do this every once in a while, on occasion, or whenever it is convenient for you. But he was saying you must do this and do this and never stop doing this. And in saying that, he was emphasizing the extreme requirement of the law. And the reward of perfect, constant Extreme obedience would be life, eternal life. Do this and you will live. You will truly live now in this life and you will live eternally after this life. Now, Jesus did not say that this was possible, but he was telling the truth. Before the rebellious fall of mankind in Adam, perfect obedience was possible and there would be life. But since the fall, being fallen and depraved, we cannot and do not keep the law perfectly, meet God's requirements perfectly, but yet God requires perfect obedience either by us or by another for us. And the promise for perfect obedience is indeed eternal life. What Jesus was doing here was confronting the lawyer with his own law. He was confronting the expert of the law with the law itself. And it was a very convenient situation to do so. But as a side note, we also learned something here for evangelism. Many people easily agree that they are sinners. Oh yeah, I've sinned, I'm a sinner. But the reality of that and the significance of that hasn't convicted them. 
And so they carry on in life just as they are. It is important that people be taught to some degree, not only of God their Creator, and of themselves as fallen sinners, but also about God's righteous requirements in His law, which they cannot keep so that they will be convicted or more convicted of their sin and need and turn in repentance to God and faith in Jesus Christ. And what about yourself? Have you been convicted by the law of God that you have not, cannot, and do not keep it fully in wholehearted love and worship to God and in love and compassion to your neighbor? but that you break it time and again in your actions and words, whether you are all alone or among others, and even in your secret thoughts. That you break it, whether it is by doing what you ought not to do, sins of commission, or by not doing what you ought to do, sins of omission. And by all of this, you are really then adding to your guiltiness, which we have in Adam before our holy God greatly offending God, our good-doing Creator, and the overflowing fountain of all good, and increasing your deserving of eternal condemnation. Are you convicted this morning that you are a sinner? The test is to examine your life, as the saying goes, by the mirror of God's law, everything included. Jesus said, do this, obey this perfectly, and you will live. The lawyer should have responded like we should, by humbly admitting, Jesus, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. But I need a Savior to do that for me and to pay for all of my sins. But instead, this man He tried to justify himself by making a request for clarification. Verse 29 says, But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This brings us to our third point, the clarification. This also brings us to the so-called parable of the Good Samaritan. A very well-known story, which teaches a great lesson by way of example that we should be caring and compassionate to the needy. But in its context, it also teaches who our neighbors are. Now the lawyer, it says, he wanted to justify himself. That means he wanted to show or prove that he was righteous, that he was a law keeper, that he was loving God and his neighbor, that he was doing this, and therefore was truly living and righteous and right with God. That is really our natural tendency as well, isn't it, to to defend ourselves and and to make ourselves look like we are without spot and, and without blemish. Now remember who he was. He was an expert in the law of Moses. And as... Verse 25 says he was testing Jesus. And if that meant that he was trying to trick Jesus, which I believe he was, 
then this can help us further understand why he would ask this question in the first place. If Jesus had spoken ill of the law, then he could have condemned Jesus publicly. But since Jesus spoke well of the law, the lawyer now wanted to prove to the people that Jesus was in error in requiring people to follow him for justification or to be right with God, since he thought that he was achieving that all by himself and that others then could or did too. The lawyer did not ask who his neighbor was, as though he and the people didn't have any idea. But it says to justify himself. We don't really know what his exact belief was of who counted as his neighbor, but we can be sure that it wasn't everyone in the world, but only a limited group of some sort. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says that on this point, there was a wide variety of opinion among the Jews. A widely accepted view seems to have been, love your neighbor, the Israelite. Further, the Pharisees, however, narrowed this down even more, he says, namely, to love your neighbor, the Pharisee. A parallel today would be to believe that your neighbor was only those of your own church or only those who were united with you in agreement on certain things in the church. For this lawyer, this scribe, this associate of the Pharisees, he may have thought that he hadn't mistreated any of his own people too badly, totally misunderstanding sins of his heart, he may have thought he hadn't mistreated any of his own people too badly or, or any of his inner circle of associates, undervaluing so-called small sins. He may have thought he had even helped such people in times of need before. And so to him, he may have thought that he was indeed a righteous man. Perhaps others could testify of him too, that he indeed lived an outwardly righteous life. And so he asked Jesus this question of who his neighbor was, expecting him to answer in agreement with him. And essentially proving he thought that he didn't need Jesus because, well, he thought he was loving God and his neighbor as required already. He thought he was righteous in himself. But what a surprise he got. We know the story. Whether it was an actual event or no, it doesn't matter. A man was traveling by foot or mule from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a very dangerous journey. It was apparently a rocky way winding through the desert and, and had caves along it, especially in what is called the Pass of Adumim, which robbers would hide. And these robbers, they would let some travelers pass by and others they would rob. Well, this man was one of the victims. They stripped him of his clothing and then they proceeded to beat him up until he was half dead or nearly dead. After they left, then first a priest came and then a Levite, both religious workers, if you will, like this lawyer was. A Levite could be thought of as a priest's assistant. 
And both simply passed by. The priest saw him and passed by, thinking of whatever excuse he could think of. And the same with the Levite. He came and he looked and passed by as well. But then a Samaritan came and outshined them. After he saw the hurting man, he had compassion. He had love for his fellow traveler. He cared for that man as he would want that man to care for him if he had been the victim. And so we read in verse 34 that he went to him. He bandaged his wounds as well, probably by ripping some of his own clothing into strips for bandages. He poured on oil and wine to to soothe and disinfect, sacrificing his own supply for his journey. He put him on his own animal, meaning he might now have to walk the rest of the way if they couldn't both sit on it. He brought him to an inn and paid for his stay and for the care of him, not only for that night, but enough for many days, giving the equivalent of two days' wages, which was apparently enough for 24 nights, since the daily rate for a poor man was about one-twelfth of a denarius. He then promised to return to pay anything extra owing if the man needed to stay longer before he was well enough to go on his way again. This is quite a touching and a heart-searching example of love, a good reminder for all of us. And it should convict us to examine the love that we show to others in our lives. And if we are honest, we will all say that we fall short in this. And sadly, it is true that often those who know or should know better, like that priest or Levite, do not do better as well. Everyone comes short. And so Jesus' question is a good one for all of us. We see here a very powerful ending to the whole inquiry. Jesus said in verse 36, So, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Now notice, notice this. Notice the difference between the lawyer's question and Jesus' question. The lawyer asked, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus asked, Who was neighbor? The lawyer was asking how small of a circle he could make, who he could limit as his neighbors. But Jesus, instead of limiting who one's neighbors are, asked who acted neighborly. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Jesus was teaching that everyone is our neighbor and that we are to act neighborly, lovingly to everyone, regardless of people groups. This was a powerful question because Jesus used a Samaritan as a commendable example. He used someone who this lawyer despised since Samaritans were a mixed people and and therefore considered unclean and to be avoided. It is also not mentioned anywhere what people group the traveler was part of. The Samaritan didn't care about that, but still cared for the man. He still acted neighborly. He still cared for him as a neighbor. And so, in answer to Jesus' question, the lawyer reluctantly had to say, he who showed mercy on him. Jesus made this man essentially testify that his concept of who one's neighbors are 
was wrong. And further, that he was therefore not righteous after all, as he thought. We indeed learn here who our neighbors are. We learn here that we shouldn't be thinking, who do I not have to love and show mercy to? But who can I love and show mercy to? We should even delight to and, and in the service of God. Jesus then again powerfully says in conclusion, go and do likewise. Go and be like that Samaritan. Go and be neighborly, be loving to all groups of people, to friends as well as strangers, when people are watching and when people are not watching. And again, this was powerful because the lawyer clearly wasn't doing that or thinking that. We indeed see powerfully that Jesus' teaching was certainly unique, indeed with authority, and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we do not read what happened after this. If the lawyer walked away disgruntled, or if he walked away convicted of his unrighteousness and insufficiency and need for a Savior. But the important matter for us this morning is how we walk away from this passage, which brings us to our fourth point, the application. And in application, does this passage convict you of your unrighteousness in yourself? in not loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and not loving your neighbor as yourself? Does this passage convict you of your insufficiency to keep the law of God fully and earn eternal life all by yourself? And does this passage convict you of your need, therefore, for a Savior? If so, then welcome to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And see with me for a moment the perfect suitableness of Jesus' person and his work. Look at his person. We are sinners, but he is without sin. He is without spot and blemish and therefore could earn eternal life, not only for himself, but for sinners such as us. And look at his work. We sin, but he has paid for sin. He was not the good Samaritan, but he was greater than the good Samaritan. He saw our sin and had compassion. He came to us, to this world, in his humiliation. He paid the greatest price for sinners, the price of redemption suffering his father's wrath against sin all his life long and especially on the cross. He came to bandage our wounds. As Isaiah says, by his stripes we are healed. His body was broken and his blood was shed to disinfect and soothe us from our sins. And he promises to take good care of all who put their trust in him until we reach our heavenly future. Jesus was even loving this lawyer, although not necessarily in a saving way, but by even having this conversation for his spiritual good. 
congregation, have you seen or do you see your need to put your trust in such a Savior? To confess your sins, to turn to God, and to believe on Jesus. What must we do to inherit eternal life? We cannot keep the law perfectly ourselves. But Jesus has, and he has satisfied for the sins of all who put their trust in him. And so we must put our trust in him. Truly, as Acts 4 verse 12 says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And believer, let us, out of thankfulness and love, seek to wholeheartedly, seek all the time to love the Lord our God and our neighbor as ourselves, seeking to keep the whole law perfectly always, even though that is still not possible with us. It should always be the great interest in our new life as fruit and evidence of true faith. And as perfect love and obedience is still not possible with us, well then, Jesus and his love to us should always be our greatest joy in our new life, because in him and him alone we have eternal life. Amen.